Well, look, I, I think this is a bit of a red herring, so I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this. The fact is there are very few, probably no trade events that happen in Hong Kong that have more than 50% capacity. Mm. The only events are those big consumer fairs, mm. uh, and in particular the, the book fair, which, which had 830,000 visitors you know, a week ago. So the, the timing of, of, of these new restrictions to come in is, is, is very strange, given the fact that you know, for the foreseeable road ahead, we haven't got any events planned that, that are going to come anywhere near that 50% mark. Is the reality, though, that your industry has changed forever now? People have got used to holding online events and seminars. We're never going to go back to how it used to be, is it? Is it you've got to get used to a, a new normal now for your industry? Uh, no, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, look, it's, it's part of human instinct to, to want to come together and to want to do business face-to-face. -face. Uh, and actually what we're seeing in, in that some of those parts of the world where exhibitions and trade shows are beginning to open up, um, that, that they're coming back and they're coming back in their droves. So, um, yes, online has, has sort of filled the gap, um, but it, it can never replace face-to-face. -face. Um, and, and, and I think that's becoming very, very clear. Stuart, thanks very much for coming in this morning and talking about that. That's Stuart Bailey, chairman of the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets around Asia for this morning. The SX200 in Australia up about 0.1%. Also a rebound going on in Japan. The Nikkei 225 up half a percent. Over in South Korea, the Cosby has advanced about a third of a percent. And futures markets indicating a big rebound for the Hang Seng at the open following that online meeting convened by the China Securities Regulator last night to try and end the route that's going on in Hong Kong and Chinese stocks. Futures markets indicating a gain of about 2.7, 2.8%, which is over 600 points and means the index, the Hang Seng index, should open above 26,000 in just under an hour's, hour's time. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil, $74.70 a barrel and gold trading at $1,810 an ounce. And that's it for me this morning. The news coming up next and then stay tuned for Back Chats with Danny Gittings and Nixie Lamb. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy, occasional showers and isolated thunderstorms. Sunny intervals in the afternoon and a maximum temperature of about 32 degrees. And those squally thunderstorms will continue in the next couple of days. There is a thunderstorm warning in force right now. It's 30 degrees out at the observatory, 84% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.33, here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. An infrastructure bill worth more than $1 trillion has cleared a major hurdle in the U.S. Senate after passing a procedural vote. A formal debate can now begin on the program, one of President Biden's main priorities. Earlier, Republican and Democratic leaders announced they'd agreed on the legislation's key elements following months of negotiations. The Republican Senator Susan Collins said the vote was a triumph for cross-party cooperation. We have shown tonight... We've shown America tonight that we can work together, that we can put aside ideological differences and work together to find common ground on an issue that affects each and every American. President Biden said the breakthrough showed the world that American democracy could deliver. Aid workers say hundreds of thousands of children in Lebanon are going to bed hungry as their parents struggle to cope with an extremely severe economic crisis. The charity Save the Children has urged the world to do more. Here's the BBC's Alan Johnston. 
A report by the charity Save the Children warns that Lebanese families are increasingly unable to pay for the basic necessities, food, electricity and medicine. They're being forced to eat less or eat poorer quality food. Some families are having to sell things like their furniture and more and more children are being sent out to work. The charity says the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that children will slide into malnutrition, which could ultimately lead to deaths. All eyes will be back on the pool this morning when Hong Kong's top swimmer Siobhan Hoffey competes in the semi-finals of the women's 100 metres freestyle. She took silver in yesterday's 200 metres freestyle, Hong Kong's second medal at the Tokyo Games. Also this morning, badminton players Jay Ying Sut and Tan Chung Man will be in the semi-finals of the mixed doubles around 9.30am. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings. Your co-host this morning is Nixie Lamb. Good morning, Nixie. Good morning. On today's Back Chat, we'll be asking just how badly will the current wave of emigration affect Hong Kong schools and universities? Student numbers in the local schools are already down by more than 15,000 compared with a year earlier. And many educators say that's just the start, given the long queues of families seen checking in for flights to London in recent weeks. Some fair schools will have to close, but others say this could be an opportunity to reduce class sizes and make local schools more attractive by introducing a more international curriculum. There are also questions about the possible impact on university numbers, especially after three local universities confirm they'll make national security education compulsory. So how should Hong Kong schools and universities react to this mass exodus? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call, 233-88266. Later in the programme, walk-in vaccines for the elderly. Joining us for the main segment of discussion this morning, we have here in the studio Mervyn Chung, chair of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group, and also on the phone, Dion Chan. Dion Chan is the chair of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Schools Council. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. Um, before we get started, maybe let's just... Um, it's all Olympics right now. We'll bring in one uh, broadly related um, Olympics email, uh, which is actually a follow-up email from uh, Martin. And this email is entitled Two Systems Part Two. And Martin says, so in order to appease a DAB District Council wannabe athlete, wannabe athlete, uh, so, sorry, so in, in order to appease a DAB, DAB District Councillor, wannabe athlete Angus Ng was obliged to wear a T-shirt with the SAR emblem. That this was a tennis shirt made of 100% polyester fabric that could not absorb sweat appears to have been of no consideration. The athlete was visibly sweating heavily and in consequence played poorly. Nicholas Munk posted a less than convincing apology and the DAB party appears to believe that that is the end of the matter. If someone from the yellow camp had created a scenario that clearly negatively impacted the performance of one of our athletes and the rankings of the China-Hong Kong squads at this prestigious international event, there would have been not only strong reprimands from the authority, but the perpetrator would certainly be locked up for anti-patriotic crimes. The wall of silence from those who should have strongly condemned the unjustified attack on the athlete is shocking and yet more proof that of one rule for some and another rule for others' regime now in place. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, Nixie, just 
briefly, any thoughts on this whole controversy involving um, DAB party member Nicholas Mook and how the DAB has handled this? There isn't any laws as anti-patriotic law at all. <laughs> so I don't know which part of the law he was reading or <laughs> fearing, but yeah. <laughs> but how about the, the, the comments, initial comments by Nicholas Mook himself? Do you think he, he stepped over the line? Yeah, I saw the photos. I had a little discussion with the uh, reporters yesterday about the shirts and stuff, and I do think that it, it's pretty sweat here, like all wet up and sticking on his body, which is very unfortunate. I didn't really know what's the arrangement on the shirts, uh, but uh, yeah. So I, I don't know what, what, what to comment about. I think um, Nicholas, I think he, simply he's a bit too young, uh, not too mature on how to handle with that, that sort of issue. But I, I yeah, personally, I, I sort of know him. It's like not that he's my friend, but personally, he, he's, a, he's a good guy. Okay, let's uh, return to the uh, main topic of the discussion this morning. And as I said, uh, we have here with us Mervyn Cheung, the chair of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group, and on the phone, uh, Dion Chan, uh, chair of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidies uh, Scheme Schools Council. Mervyn, let's go to you first. Um, okay. the, these figures that uh, have just been uncovered this week, these government figures showing a drop in the number of 15,000 15, stu- students in, in local schools, these figures are from last autumn, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, they're, they're already people talking about them as a very significant to drop but anyone in Hong Kong knows that a lot of pe- a lot of school kids have moved overseas since last autumn the when when the current figures come out they're going to be much larger than this aren't they yeah that's true and uh, but the exact uh, size of, of the the phenomenon that, that is uh, the departure of students from our schools will need to be confirmed later on because in in September the the EDB normally conduct uh, conduct a, a, a you know accounting exercise you know, uh, oh. by doing it direct in in, in in school classes. So by then, I think um, the uh, more more exact numbers of uh, students having departed would uh, would come onto the surface. And then, to, but uh, in the meantime, uh, it should be necessary for all parties, uh, including the government and also the the non-government side. That is uh, in the schools and the school sponsoring bodies uh, to consider some kind of uh, uh, like adjustments, projections, or, or, mm-hmm. yeah, adjustments, and also solutions to mm-hmm. to the problems that they they they, they anticipate. Mm. So, what's the major reason you see, like why they are leaving, or is it that the, the number compares to what we had before the COVID? Uh, what's the difference? I think uh, students leaving Hong Kong for overseas educations is not uh, an unfamiliar situation. Uh, but this time it seems that the, the numbers are e- escalating. Mm. And uh, previously it might be that uh, st- students in, in the more senior forms will leave, mm. say for, for higher education t- mm. in, in one of the preferred uh, uh, overseas countries. But now to, uh, the uh, uh, the exodus seems to happen just across the grades, and including in prime. I think one thing was yeah, primary, primary and secondary, school, primary, primary secondary. school as well, right? A lot of primary six students leaving. Essentially, they deciding to conduct their secondary education outside Hong Kong. Right? Yeah, that's true. And even secondary one students uh, uh, might, might might follow their families to to emigrate to other countries. Mm. So to, uh, in in that case, uh, they they choose to study 
in the in, in the country of our, you know our, our, of their choice. Mm-hmm. Of course, we don't know, do we? I mean, as you said, uh, a lot of Hong Kong kids will always go overseas to study. We don't know how many of these children are moving with their families as opposed to um, just the children going by themselves. Anecdotal evidence from what both. We all, I think, I think we, we tend to know is a, is a lot of families are moving at the moment. So we would say probably quite a lot of them are with their families, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah. that probably is the situation. So I hope to, instead of raising passively for, for the numbers to come up, uh, the government and, and also the, say, the school sponsoring bodies mm. might take a more proactive uh, approach of the, doing some study on, on the situation and, and try to you know, map out some, some solutions well in advance. Okay, well, we'll talk about those solutions uh, shortly. But first of all, let, let's go to Dion Chen. Dion Chen is the chair of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Schemes Cou- uh, Schools Council. Um, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Um, you, you said that uh, some sco- direct subsidy um, scheme schools have been very hard hit by Nexus. I think you referred to uh, uh, one school that had lost uh, sort of, sort of like sort of sixteen percent of students. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, I think I shared it before. Like uh, we know that some member schools they definitely uh, they are now suffering from like uh, quite a lot, number of students withdrew from the school in the last school year. And uh, one, I think one school I shared before, like, uh, they have about 160 students left the school last year in total. And uh, around that, that school, possibly around 1,100 students. And uh, for some sec- uh, primary, sorry, so for some years at secondary school, we also reported that, like, some years at secondary school, they also have probably about 80 to 100 students, uh, I mean, left last year. So I think the situation is not just only in one secondary school, it's possibly across the uh, sector, I would say. Are you seeing any differences between different areas in Hong Kong? I mean, some people are saying in areas that are perhaps more middle class, the schools there are worse affected, or are you seeing this all the way across Hong Kong? I, I, can't, I can't say that it's just only on the middle class. Uh, or about, I would feel like uh, quite a lot of schools in Hong Kong, they also have uh, lost quite a lot of students, even like the government school or the aided school. And uh, those students really are across the board. And what's going to happen? I mean, DSS schools are very heavily dependent on um, on tuition fees from students. If they can't replace these students, um, what's going to happen to DSS schools? Well, like, uh, of course, government, they already have a very good system in place, as I would say, good system, okay? So because they request the school have a certain, uh, you know, uh, amount of reserve to be, to be kept every year. So those reserves could be used to against the situation, like if we suddenly lose quite a lot of students and a lot of income. But like, I think now at the school, they have ideas that like uh, they will possibly plan that some of the students will leave in the middle of the school year, especially next year, I mean the coming school year. So that when they, when they plan for the budget, they will be much more like careful and also looking into the areas that like, are they really need to use those, uh, I mean the resources on some like, maybe the capital investment project at this moment, or possibly they can defer some of the big projects in the future. The future. And what's your, um, what's your impression about, the, are, are all these students leaving Hong Kong or are some of them switching to the international system? I believe that like quite a lot of them uh, basically left Hong Kong. And um, I think in the current system, like the EDB requested the school to report to the EDB through the uh, kind of, kind of online system that like if there's any student leaving school we need to uh, report to them and also state the reason and if the parents let us know the reason we usually uh, also report it in the TV's right so most of the stu- most of the cases that we receive 
age, like uh, recently leaving Hong Kong, uh, I mean, leaving school or leaving Hong Kong. Is there like like an alert system if like like a large number of students leaving, it, the government will react to something? Is there any mechanism like that? As far as I know, possibly there's no such system in place now, mm-hmm. and especially for DSS school. And uh, you know, we got the subsidy based on the number of students we admitted. So, like uh, from the government point of view, I believe that like okay, you have few students, they provide you fewer subsidy. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very common, isn't it? I mean, students leave over the summer. There are even some students who say that, um, uh, or their parents say that they, their, their kids are going to come back to the school in September, but then um, they, leave, they, they, change, they change their mind and leave over the summer. So is it quite possible when we come to September, October, we'll find the numbers who've left is, is even bigger than we think now? I believe so. Like, quite a lot of school in, I mean, in, in the DSS sector, they will ask the parents to pay the registration fee or the school fee for September in early August or in late July. Mm. And by that time, we more or less know that like how many parents or how many students they decide to return to school uh, in September. But uh, it's, it's also quite common that like some of the parents, they, de- uh, they deferred the payment or they delayed the payment because they, they did a little bit more time to think about the plan for next year. So we believe that like in September, there will be some students um, at the end, they will not return to the school. Now, presumably the top schools uh, will have no problem filling these places with people transferring from other schools. It's going to be schools which are not quite at the top tier who, who, are, who are most badly affected. Um, I can't really 100% say this, because like, uh, some of the so-called uh, top schools, okay, they also share that like, it's not that easy to replace students. And uh, especially in secondary school sector, and we have the DSE system, we have the, maybe the non-local curriculum system in, in place. And if the students study in one school, they have already started the senior curriculum. Possibly not that easy for them to move to another school. Maybe junior secondary a bit easier, but uh, senior secondary, usually we can't replace the number of students that we expect. Uh, let's briefly talk about, you mentioned about the non-local curriculum in, in local schools, and I think um, you've said before that maybe if uh, schools were able to offer a more interna- international curriculum, that that might be one way to, um, to a- attract students to stay. Is that right? Yep. Uh, in fact, like our council uh, has been um, I mean, promoting this and uh, uh, you know, working with the government and see any possibility to relax the current uh, you know, the criteria, if you like, and... Uh, Basically, we think that if we can offer more international curriculum places to students in Hong Kong, there may be some students or parents that decide to keep the kids in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, DSD is a good exam or good system or, or good program. However, not all students are really, you know, uh, I would say, uh, suitable to this program. And some of the international curriculum actually can help with help retaining some of the Hong Kong kids in Hong Kong. Maybe you explain, uh, our listeners may not be familiar, I, I'm familiar with the restrictions because my <laughs> daughter studies, I, I, I be at a local school, but um, uh, can you explain about the restrictions the government imposes on local schools um, teaching IB and other international curriculums? Mm-hmm. Uh, basically now, like, only DSS school in Hong Kong can offer the international curriculum and the uh, DSC curriculum uh, together at the same time. And uh, either school and government school, they are only allowed to offer the DSE curriculum. So uh, for the DSS secondary school, some of them, they decided to go for IB. Some of them, they are now offering GCE, a level curriculum. So basically, is that uh, the government now says 
SAID that like they also issued a, a sort of a circular uh, last year and make very clear that like the school offered the international curriculum in the senior secondary section and uh, not more than one third of the students are allowed to study the uh, international curriculum. So which means that two thirds of students in the same cohort they will be assigned or they will study in DSE. So this ratio or one third or two thirds this ratio, then we believe that uh, if the government can relax a little bit more, then we can attract more students to Hong Kong. Yes, I, I know from my own experience, that's a serious issue, isn't it? The, the cap the government imposes on the number of students who can study um, um, international curriculum in a local school, right? And if the student numbers fall at the school, then the, num- the numbers who, who will be allowed to study the international curriculum will, will go down as well, won't it? Yes, certainly. So we basically, we're based on the total number of students in that particular cohort. So if, I mean, the total number of students drop and the students who are allowed to study international curriculum will be dropped as well. Um, Mervyn Chung, you were talking yeah. about possible solutions earlier on. Um, it, that's, that's one possible solution, the government to be more flexible about what, what kind of syllabus local schools can teach. What, what, what other solutions would you suggest? Um, well, uh, yeah, f- first of all, I think uh, the, um, uh, expanding the international curriculum for, for those local schools is a, is a possible option that can be considered. And then I think uh, at a school level... Um, I don't uh, support the government continuing with the conventional uh, uh, school closure policy because uh, we are facing a situation which is changing and at the same time uh, increasing in proportion, just like a number of students uh, leaving Hong Kong. So uh, in the past, when, when local school cannot get... Uh, when a certain local school cannot uh, you know, get uh, uh, a certain number of students for, for classes, then it will be subject, uh, it, it would be subject to closure. I hope this kind of you know, mechanical counting of students and then the, uh, the rigid application of this kind of policy you know, should, should stop, at, at least for some time, and let the situation uh, clear up itself. And, and also, uh, in terms of the manpower, even if a schools has got a few number of classes, say, over the next uh, one or two years. Uh, there should not be any cut, cut back uh, in, in terms of the number of, uh, of teachers and also staff. So I think uh, we need to make these things clear so that schools can continue with their teaching and educational mission uninterrupted. Mm. Instead of getting them to worrying all the time, that would affect the mor- mor- morale of the, of the teachers and also the, the, the faith of the students and the parents in the school. Mm. Uh, okay, we, we have a, a, announcement, a traffic announcement uh, due to a water main burst. Parts of the lane of Quintong Road, uh, Yao Tong bound near Choishek Lane, closed all traffic. Uh, the traffic queue on the Quintong Road, Yao Tong bound, ends at uh, Lung Chung Road, uh, So Orca State. Traffic very congested now. Thank you very much. Uh, but uh, Dion Cheng, um, how much of an impact is uh, national security education having on uh, this exodus? I mean, we, we, we all know of stories of parents who say that they don't want their children to have to go through national security education, um, and that's one of the reasons for leaving. Uh, how, how, how significant a factor would you say this is? Well, at least like we really haven't heard from the parents directly that like they leave Hong Kong. The main reason is because of the national security law or the education, and uh, of course, like parents share with the school that like they have 
different kind of the plan. Especially, I believe that the uh, the immigration policy policies like uh, you know launched by various countries and is the main reason of some of the Hong Kong families leave Hong Kong. So uh, while so far then uh, national security education, I believe it's, main, it's not the main reason. Okay, let's bring in a couple of comments uh, from listeners. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, uh, a response to the email that I read out at the start of the show, not, not on today's topic, but uh, on the Olympics and that, that whole issue involving DAB member Nicholas, Nicholas Mook. Um, Martin uh, criticising DAB Nicholas, uh, member Nicholas Mook and wondering how, if someone from the Yellow Camp had said something similar, how, um, what kind of response there would be. Uh, Toby, who is a serving police officer and a uh, regular contributor to Backchat, responding saying, Martin's email that if Angus Ng had been a yellow supporter he'd have been locked up is wildly inaccurate and without any basis in law. What utter nonsense. Maybe he would be able to point to uh, which law Ng would have committed to be locked up. Uh, returning to today's theme, uh, John Kowloon says, as you may have read, Beijing this week announced a maybe crackdown on the private tutorial sector in China, a move which many commentators believe could wipe out many of the providers. Do your expert guests think this could trigger an increase of demand from mainlanders to send their kids to Hong Kong for schooling? Yeah. Mervyn Chung, we haven't really talked about it. I mean, one thing some people say is maybe certainly once COVID restrictions ease that uh, uh, mainlanders will, or kid, uh, kids from the mainland will fill some of the gaps in Hong Kong schools. Do you, how likely do you think that is? Um, yeah, that, that's a possibility, but I'm not uh, looking at the, uh, at the issue in, in this perspective. I'd rather uh, consider that uh, Hong Kong has already uh, for long been... Uh, been considering uh, developing itself uh, into a region, at least regional ed education hub. Mm. So uh, if we have, uh, we now have a space capacity, say over the next few years, why should we not consider uh, uh, exploiting such a, such a space capacity to our greatest advantage? That is to bring in uh, children of high quality from uh, different parts of the world to study here. Do you think people from elsewhere in the world are still going to want to come? I mean, Hong Kong hasn't exactly had a positive press over the last year, is it? If you're a parent um, elsewhere in the world thinking about where to send your children, it, it's, it's, it wouldn't be surprising if you had some hesitation about sending them to Hong Kong right Yeah, now. some hesitation. But uh, when you look at the, um, the reports uh, uh, released by the universities, uh, uh, by the local universities, uh, the public universities here don't have any problem in recruiting students from even overseas. So I think uh, following this rationale, if our curriculum can be improved, it, if our learning environment can be improved, it, there, might be, uh, there might be room for, uh, you know, for, for us uh, fulfilling, further fulfilling our dream of becoming a, a, an education hub, at, at least regionally. Oh, let's ask uh, Dion Chen about that. Uh, Dion Chen, both in terms of um, more mainland students coming to Hong Kong and, and perhaps more international students, is, is that the solution for DSS schools with numbers falling? Well, we certainly welcome like, the students from different parts of the world, including mainland, to come to Hong Kong, especially come to DSS school. In fact, like in my, uh, the current serving school, then we have quite a lot of international students uh, I mean, applying to our school. Uh, for joining us for next school year, uh, even during the COVID time or during these, like, uh, we call the critical time. Sorry, when you say and international, you mean students who are not living in Hong Kong? Not living in Hong Kong. 
Kong, yeah. yes. And uh, there's quite a lot of families like they moved to Hong Kong, I think, in the summertime or just right before summer. And uh, they are now looking for school places. And uh, they contacted us. And uh, in every single year group, then we also have these kind of applications. So as I share, like, uh, we welcome like international students and uh, we also welcome international students. I think one of the uh, strengths of the DFS school is that we are, we are a little bit more flexible than a, a local sector school or a school that uh, we can cater for the needs for the international students. Uh, for mainland students, I think quite a lot of schools in Hong Kong, they can certainly I mean, have a good program for uh, the mainland students. And uh, so that's why, like, if the government really have that kind of policies, like letting the uh, international, more international students come to Hong Kong and also mainland students come to Hong Kong, we certainly, uh, I believe that our DFS schools are well prepared for that. But if you're talking about more international students coming to Hong Kong, you're back to the same problem we discussed earlier about the restrictions on the number of students who can do an international curriculum in your schools. Mm. Now, and I probably can share a little bit more that, like, uh, international students studying in Hong Kong or studying uh, I mean, DSS school are not necessarily to study in international curriculum. They can also follow the Hong Kong local system and then to get into the universities in Hong Kong or overseas. And uh, uh, at least in my school or some of the DFS school we have been serving the international students. They have uh, we have a lot of successful cases that like international students they study the local system and go into the university in different they, parts of the world. They take DSE Chinese? Per, oh, uh, some of them do, okay. And then mm. some of them like they use the uh, IGCSE or GCE A level Chinese. You had an you intake than when I said that, Nick. Yeah, I was like, mm, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, well, that's some very impressive uh, international students there. Um, okay, we'll, we'll have to um, uh, pause for a moment there and say goodbye to uh, Dion Chen, Dion Chair, the Chair of the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council. But Mervyn Chung is staying with us and we'll be continuing the discussion after nine and perhaps also broadening out to look at the impact on international schools. Uh, email from a, a listener talking about the possibly uh, massive exodus at some international schools. So do email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can go to our Facebook page Backchat on RTHK Radio Free and leave a comment there and later on we'll be talking about walking vaccines for the elderly the weather forecast mainly cloudy with a few showers and isolated thunderstorms later on the temperature will be 32 degrees currently 30 degrees relative humidity 83% and more and more children are being sent out to work the charity says the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that children will slide into malnutrition, which could ultimately lead to deaths. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Backchat. I'm Danny Gitting, sitting in for Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host this morning is Nixie Lamb. In the second half of the show, we're continuing our discussion about the max exodus from Hong Kong schools. Uh, 15,000 children uh, in fewer in Hong Kong schools compared with a year earlier, but those figures from last October, in fact, comparing with October 2019, and almost everybody expects that when we have updated figures, uh, the fall will be even greater. Uh, our guests as we continue the discussion, uh, Mervyn Chung, Mervyn Chung, Chair of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group. We're now also joined by Anne Murphy. Anne Murphy is Director of the Education Services Company, ITS Education Asia. Later on in the programme, we'll be talking about um, the new policy of allowing elderly people, very few, uh, relatively few elderly have been vaccinated, elderly people just to walk in and get vaccinated.
patients without actually making appointments. If you have any thoughts on either of those topics or indeed anything else, the Olympics or anything else, uh, just email us at backchat at rthk.hk. That's backchat at rthk.hk. Or you can leave a message on our Facebook page, backchat on rthk radio free. Uh, just a, com- a couple of comments from listeners uh, on, uh, related to today's topic. On uh, Facebook, uh, Peter says, start shipping the brainwashed replacements in from the mainland. Um, and Alonso, we, so far we've been talking really about the uh, impact on, on local schools. And of course, we had Dion Chen from uh, the Hong Kong Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council in the first half. But Alonso uh, asking, talking about the impact on international schools in Hong Kong. Uh, and Alonso saying, on today's subject, I recently heard free rumours and would be grateful if any listeners can shed light on their accuracy or lack thereof. Uh, referring to French international school says 300 families are departing Hong Kong. For German Swiss international school, 220 students leaving Hong Kong. For Ireland school, dozens of teachers leaving. Any truth to these stories? Perhaps staff members from the free schools could reply. Well, you're very welcome to email us from those schools. But uh, let's uh, let's talk to Anne Murphy now, and perhaps um, we can also focus on this issue of um, departures from international and ESF schools. Um, Anne Murphy, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. Good morning. Morning and thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, without necessarily talking about those specific schools, although you're welcome to shed light on them if you have figures there. What is your impression about um, departures from international schools and ESF schools generally in Hong Kong? Yeah, there has been. <laughs> Sorry, we're losing you. Maybe you try you try moving. So try, hi, try again. Okay, sorry, yeah, there has been departures. Is that better? Can you hear me Yes, that, that's fine, okay. yes. All right. Um, yeah, there has been departures. There's been quite a significant departures of students from various year groups. Um, I'm, we, we have education consultancies for the UK, for America, for um, Hong Kong and Singapore as, as well. And we have seen a lot of families and they're inquiring about moving abroad um, significantly, a lot more local families have taken up the opportunity to move to the UK. And a lot of those students might have already been um, attending an international school. They have done the switch back in 2019. We have helped many families back then to move from local into international. But then since then, they decided that they would move out because they feel that it's better for their children to be in in Britain, Australia, or Canada. And for local families in particular, um, the tightening of freedom affects their children. They're worried about their future. So that's why a lot of these families have moved from the international schools. If you look at expatriates, um, many many parents have lost jobs and they just can't afford to live in the city anymore. So that's another reason why families are leaving international schools as well. So you're saying when you hear from clients and so on who, who are moving, uh, some of them do mention the political climate in Hong Kong, uh, national security law yes, and so on? Yeah, and, and in particularly those that we helped back, when, you know, back in 2019, who wanted to make that switch from local to international. We had many, many families. And subsequently coming back and asking us about schools in the UK or Canada or Australia, because, again, they just really have got more worried as the years have gone on and the future of their children. So when we, I read out that email just now from a listener, even if you don't know the figures for specific schools, that's quite believable. I don't actually, yeah. no. But, it's, yeah, <laughs> but it's, I wouldn't want to say anyway. <laughs> but it's quite believable that uh, certainly some international schools and, um, are facing very large exoduses. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think the Home Office um, did a study and they said that 5.4 million Hong Kong Hong Kongers are eligible for the B&Os. Mm. And that they see that there's about going to be about 322,000 moved to the country between 2021 and 2025. So, you know, if the Home Office have done that study and they already know and to predict the numbers, there's going to be more families leaving. And again, those families might have just remained within the local system or they made the switch to international. So it's not just those schools you mentioned. Many, many families, unfortunately. And what's going to happen to these international schools losing such large numbers of students? I mean, they're even more dependent on them. Yeah. The they are. And they're more dependent because of the, the cutoff with the passports. And international students, some have 70% foreign passport holders, others have 80%. So mm. it's going to be very, very difficult for schools to fill their seats. Um, but hopefully, you know, I mean, we all, I do see now over the last few months, a lot more families are coming, are, um, are being employed through companies in Hong Kong, international companies, financial companies. We work with a lot of banks and they're moving families to Hong Kong. So, you know, there eventually seats will be filled up again. Right. And there's a lot of families here who might have, decided to put their children into a school for a few years and then they're switching to another school and that's always been a common pathway um so you know the, the seats will get filled up eventually but it's going to take a while how big uh, of an impact you think the COVID situation impact on this like uh, like last year a lot of schools couldn't open and and then some other impact on worrying about the school closures again and how do you evaluate that well i mean i must applaud the international schools in mm. hong kong a lot of the international schools exceptionally well with online learning mm. and they catered very very well i mean at the beginning of course it was very hard for teachers and for the leaders of the schools to understand what they needed to do but you know quickly they turned it around and the children were learning and the children adapted very easily um, but I do feel that, you know, a lot of families did leave at the beginning because it was unknown, they got scared, and they moved back to their home country. And then their home country for themselves was worse than Hong Kong, right? <laughs> but a lot of those families did not return because they had already settled their children in schools there. Um, friends of mine in particular, clients of ours, they decided to go back when COVID kicked off in Hong Kong. Um, and they had then their children were in schools. So they didn't want to uproot them again. But anyone that has stayed here and has gone through the online learning experience, mm. and, you know, they, they have been very, very happy with their schools. And children have coped exceptionally well, and the teachers worked harder and harder and harder to make those classes really interesting, and, you know, and to motivate the students online, which is a very difficult thing to do, especially with young students. Uh, Marvin Chen, you, you, yes. you, you, you were talking also about the issue of the, um, the cap or the quota that um, the government imposes on how many non-local or, or actually uh, how many non-local students can be admitted in some schools, but in other cases, of like international schools, how many local students can be admitted? Yeah, um, I think the, um, the general practice is to, to put uh, a limit of the 20% to this kind of lo local recruitment. Uh, given the situation in Hong Kong uh, now and, and in the foreseeable future in terms of the student intake and also the fact that we are moving 
very very quickly towards the uh, uh, international direction in terms of economy, in terms of our uh, our, our education. I think that there, there's a, you know a, a, every strong ground for for this uh, this kind of limit to be to be relaxed. Mm. Instead of twenty percent, why not consider thirty uh, thirty or forty? Mm. Mm. Especially when we are not uh, facing some kind of excess capacity, so yeah. we should we should make the best use of it instead of uh, you know getting this uh, capacity idle. Then, of course, the local schools are going to face even more of a drain because it'll be easier for um, parents to transfer their kids across from local schools to international schools. Yeah, uh, that's right. Say uh, for DSS, uh, uh, subsidy is counted, uh, you know, on, on uh, you know on the number uh, exact number of students that the school can recruit. Say uh, wasting or, or getting a, uh, a student leaving a school could lead to a, a financial loss of close to 100,000 a year. Mm. So uh, I think uh, this is something which cannot be, be, be knighted. One thing we haven't talked about so far, we talked about students leaving. It's not just students leaving, it's mm. teachers, teachers who are leaving. And teachers leaving in huge numbers, aren't they? Schools yeah. are going to face real serious problems. Um, uh, maybe Mervyn Chung first. Yeah, that's, uh, that's becoming a problem, especially when... T- Many of the teachers who, are, who, who have chosen to leave Hong Kong are in the, ex, uh, in the highly experienced uh, category. Mm. Now, uh, because They're experience senior yeah, and, and seniority takes uh, mm. take, uh, quite, quite a long time to develop. So mm. this is something that the government uh, and also the school sponsoring bodies would need to, uh, you, would need to be double ca- uh, you know, careful. Well, the government keeps imposing more regulations on local schools. Not just about national security, although the, 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 there certainly is that. I mean, EDB is famous for sort of imposing re- more regulations on local schools. It, it's not a very um, in- conducive environment for teachers to stay, is it? Yeah, I think uh, maybe the government can, can keep more closely to uh, to to the what to to the principle they have adopted for years that is school based school based operation, giving more more freedom and also latitude uh, to schools in deciding their own affairs. Talk to any principal, a local principal, even in DSS schools, they are always complaining about how although they're supposed to have autonomy, the EDB is coming around and saying you should do this, you should do that, and uh, of course national security education just makes it worse because you get all these now these instructions about this. But even on other issues, you hear principals saying this again and again. Maybe it's, it's time for for the government to have uh, some kind of a summit meeting with the school heads and also the representatives from school sponsoring bodies on the way ahead. That is, what are hindrances that can uh, keep schools uh, in some kind of unfavorable position in meeting the challenges in the future? And uh, where, where, you know, in what areas they, they need more, more support, more freedom? Do you, do you really think it's likely that gov- any government, but this government in particular, which seems to be showing an enthusiasm for issuing more instructions rather than less, will, is, will be willing to step back and give uh, schools more autonomy? If anything, we're going in the opposite direction, aren't we? Well, I think that there should be a, you know, a frank exchange of views first. And if the government still uh, keeps keep, uh, its own way, then I think uh, you, there will be more students uh, leaving Hong Kong, and that will, you know, the, the real impact will, will, will be felt. Now, every year, the chief executive had, 
you know, uh, has a summit meeting mm. with educators. Mm. So these things can, can be discussed there instead of just uh, keeping the whole thing ceremonial in, mm. in, 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 in later appearance. What's the, the, the old arrangement like, like on those summits? What's the major topics you guys are discussing? Uh, they, they have uh, some kind of agenda covering different things. But uh, of course, for the CE, it's, it's more ceremonial, giving an opening address, you know, uh, things, things like that. So, uh, well, it, it should be a, a more, 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 more helpful if uh, this kind of summit meetings can be more focused, say, uh, on, on day one, it can be hindrances mm. or problems faced by, uh, faced by local schools, mm. uh, given the current situation and also the, um, the foreseeable circumstances. Mm. And then this can be divided, you know, subdivided into uh, teaching and learning, mm -hmm. school management, mm -hmm. uh, student support, uh, parental education, all these things. So things can can you know uh, uh, get down in, uh, can boil down into you know more concrete details mm. uh, with the government's uh, the sincere intention of providing uh, real follow-up action on things that be, that that have been agreed and 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 and, and discussed. How often the the discussion like this happens in between school principals? Like, do they have like a like they do have meetings together? I I, I reckon, but like this sort of issues, do they discuss often? May not be across uh, organizations. Mm. Um, we have, for instance, uh, uh, quite a number of uh, school heads associations mm. on on a regional basis and and also a. Uh, across the territory, mm. so we have a, a, quite many numbers of uh, school, uh, school principals associations. Maybe they can uh, gather together um, to have a, 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 a more extensive and 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 and, and uh, a, a frank, uh, you know, uh, inflow of ideas and 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 also um, experiences. Mm. Uh, and Murphy, how, how about the issue of um, exodus of teachers from international schools? I, um, it, I suppose you could say on one hand, if they're losing students, if they lose student, uh, teachers as well, it helps sort of bring down the numbers. But um, it, it could leave a lot of schools actually um, short-staffed on experienced teachers, couldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And there is, um, you know, a lot of teachers have left. And, and high talent, highly talented teachers. And, you know, to replace teachers like that, that are unable to come into Hong Kong now just to restrictions, uh, COVID restrictions, is very difficult on schools. Um, so, you know, a program that they might have been able to offer before, they might not be able to offer now for the new academic year. So it's very difficult. Um, and teachers are leaving for various reasons. Um, you know, they might have a spouse that has been made redundant in their own state in Hong Kong, or they could also have, uh, you know, a new opportunity somewhere else. But it is difficult for schools that be losing students, but also losing very talented teachers and teachers who have, you know, created great programs and had a huge impact on their students. You, you make a good point there. You say perhaps in some specialist subjects, if they, if they don't have the, the teachers for those subjects, they'll just That's have to stop, stop offering those subjects, right? Yes, yeah. Stop offering those programs. I mean, teachers that teach the core subject, you know, they're available. That's what they do. But a lot of teachers in international schools, they teach outside of that. They're specialists in the STEM or STEAM program. You know, they could be teaching a music 
instruments. They'd be also very good at a foreign language, um, an excellent musician or an art teacher, and those programmes have to stop. Are there still teachers willing to come to Hong Kong? I think so, yeah. I mean, they're going to look for more interesting packages now. Um, but, I mean, COVID has scared a lot of um, young teachers as well from going abroad, you know. So, um, I, I guess they will come and they are coming, but COVID has probably scared them. But they're looking for attractive packages and they're going to go to schools that have been well established for a long time. And just returning earlier when we were talking about the student exodus from international schools and you were saying you, you, you'd be dealing with a lot of clients um, and uh, stu students' families going all over the world, is, is it predominantly UK or is it, fair, is it fairly evenly distributed between UK and other places like Canada and so on? No, I would say predominantly UK, um, but, you know, uh, again, Canada and Australia, yes, not so much the US. Um, they're scared to go to the US. Um, but um, definitely the UK, for sure. And also, you know, we've had parents who have contacted us who decided they're going to immigrate, but a lot of them don't speak English and fluent language. You know, they don't speak fluent English, and neither do their children. So they have to do English language courses, and they have to prepare before they do go to the UK. So we've also seen a huge, um, in, a lot of inquiries for that from parents, um, from adults, and from children who need to study in English language schools in the UK, but they don't speak English. So you're seeing people who are, and of course you've always dealt with clients who are moving overseas, but you're seeing people who are a lot less prepared to move overseas now wanting to move overseas, right? Yes, yes, that's the thing, yes. And is, is that going to be a problem? Yes, children also. Do you think you'll see, is that going to be a problem? You think some of them will have difficulty adjusting, maybe even end up coming back to Hong Kong? Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I mean, they might move somewhere else, um, but I don't think it's so difficult to adjust because a lot of them have family already in the UK or they have friends that have moved there, so they're going to all depend on each other over there. And I think the UK has um, parents families um, and, and assisting them when they do move. Okay. Um, and a lot of schools have prepared for that in the UK and will offer language to children to make sure that they're able to integrate into the mainstream classes. Okay, we have uh, joy to clo close there, but um, thank you very much to our guest in the main segment of the discussion, uh, Mervyn Cheung. Mervyn Cheung is the chair of the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Group um, and join us for the second half of the show, um, Anne Murphy, Anne Murphy, director of the education services company ITS Education Asia. Uh, one coming from a listener, uh, David says... If all these people are leaving Hong Kong, then why is the price of property and rent not coming down? Or is the government up to something? Well, this is always a story. I think a lot, a, lot, a lot more people will have to leave Hong Kong before property prices start coming down, <laughs> won't they? Yes. Okay, moving on. Uh, the vaccination campaign continues in Hong Kong. And, of course, the, the numbers who are being vaccinated against COVID is it, gradually cre creeping up. Um, Nixie, mm. you've been vaccinated? Yeah. Yes, I mean... Uh, in March. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, there's talk now that we, we, we I think we reached close to 50% in terms of first, yeah, of yeah, first yeah. shots. Yeah. First shots. Yeah. That's, um, and, um, most people take first shot, we'll move on to second shot. However, the one, the one demographic where vaccination rates still are extremely low, but especially by comparison with other countries, is among the elderly people in Hong Kong. Yeah. And you were looking at figures of um, 
uh, particularly over over eighties, you're looking at figures of only um, less than five percent. Um, mm. You compare that with sort of the UK, where you have eight, 18, 90 percent. Even among the people in the sixties and seventies, it, it's higher. You've got uh, figures there of fifteen, twenty percent, but still the vast majority. And of course, those age groups are the ones who are most uh, severely severely at risk from COVID. Uh, the government uh, trying to address the situation by uh, saying that um, you no longer need to make appointments if you know, you're. Uh, or the person you want to be vaccinated, you can just turn up at the vaccination centres. Um, uh, joining us to discuss how much difference uh, this will make and also about the issue of the very low uh, vaccination rates for the elderly, especially by comparison with other countries, is uh, Rita Lam. Rita Lam is the Vice Chair of the Association of Rights of the Elderly. Good morning, Miss Lam. Welcome to Backchat. Yes, good morning. Do you think these walk-in appointments will make much difference? I mean, most elderly people, they've got family members, if they, if they want to get vaccinated or their children want them to get vaccinated, they would have made appointments by now, surely. Yeah, I, I just uh, read uh, the news uh, today, because just beginning uh, today, uh, there are already uh, some elders who are waiting at the uh, vaccination centre for the walking in uh, vaccinations already. Mm. I think they are, this um, arrangement, this measure uh, will be um, much uh, appreciated and also welcomed by the elders. Um, but I just think that um, maybe the quota, whether uh, it's uh, enough or will, will they be disappointed if there is anything that um, may um, doing in, in some troubles or others that they cannot get the vaccinations um, just today. So mm. we hope that the government, uh, if there is really the, the case like that, when they walk in, they cannot get the vaccinations mm. uh, due to some other difficulties or arrangement. Mm. Um, can they arrange um, to have um, to make the appointment on site uh, later so that um, they will not be so disappointed when right. they go early in the morning right. and to wait for the walk-in, but they cannot get it if there is a case like that. If I think, I hope that the, the government will will consider uh, uh, alternative measures for the elders who just walk in today. Yeah, I, I think we will see at the end of the day to see whether the vaccinations yeah, yeah. Are, are enough. Yeah. But what, what was the major concern, do you think, uh, for the elderly? I spoke to some of the elderly, they're saying, well, their, their doctors basically do not recommend them yeah. to get vaccinated. Yeah hence the hesitation and um, uh, do you think there's some other reasons why why they they haven't been done it like it, is it the, the online pro the on, yeah. online ra registration pro yeah. uh, thing is too difficult for them or any, anything like that i think most are the um health security concerns mm. um but i think most of the doctors maybe will not be uh, will not advise the patient mm. you go or you not to go mm. most of the time we'll just tell them uh, whether your health are uh, more stable or less stable so you have to consider yourself that was scared them off yeah <laughs> that's that, that, that's the tricky point <laughs> that is why so uh, maybe most of the doctor will will said um, maybe you 
you just be patient and wait for a while first until the um, situations are more stable or something like that. Yeah. So that's why I think most of the elders may not really just not cons- they are not vaccinated. Yes, the the weight vaccination weight is low. Yes, but I think they may not uh, determine not to get the vaccination. They are just waiting. I think just. Uh, looking at the situation, whether how how is it go- going on or something like that, and they cannot decide by themselves, right? Mm. Um, because I think no one can really um, guarantee, right? I I understand the doctor's advice and situations because you 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 may not get one hundred percent, right? Uh, confirm whether you have the um, side effects or you have others. But most of the um, the side effects as uh, reported in the earlier cases in Hong Kong, mm. I think are quite detrimental. Mm-hmm. Most of them will maybe get the uh, heart attack and um, some of them will also have the, I think, in stroke. Are we- um, sudden stroke out of that. Some died, maybe, may, may not but they, these are the most of the concerns for the senior that uh, they will not take the risk like mm-hmm. that. Okay. I do receive some messages from like locals that like like basically trust me and text me up about oh whether I should go or not. Yeah, and yeah. Just often tell them that you should talk to your doctors basically because everybody's yeah, like health yeah. condition is very different. Yeah. I think uh, also one of the, the things that the government can do more to improve the situations is a more systematic um, statistics analysis of the situations of those who have um, side effects or to have um, the problems. I think they do have some statistics, but they are not, um, I think, easily accessible the uh, main topic. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we'll draw it to a close there. That was uh, Rita Lam, Vice Chair of the Association of Rights of Elderly, talking about uh, vaccination rates for the elderly. And uh, the last words to our, our listeners, of course, uh, but firstly on vaccinations for the elderly, Alonso has a very simple suggestion. There is a simple solution to the low vaccination rates among the elderly. Give all over 80s $10,000 cash if they get jabbed. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think it's, it's you don't that, think that would, You don't think that would yeah, do it, Alexi? I think m- most of them are really concerned. I, I had that discussion last night with some elderly in my constituency. We actually discussed about, like, they do have some um, doctor's advice and they're pretty concerned about the situation. Like, same with my mom. Like, um, my mom didn't get vaccinated until about two months ago, basically, because she's a cancer survivor. And uh, she, she needs to consult quite a, quite a few mm. doctors to make sure that it is so okay for her to get vaccinated that's why the, yeah. the delay money can't solve yeah. everything right yeah. okay and the last word also to a listener on uh, our main topic this morning of course the main topic we've been talking about the government figures showing uh, an exodus of 15,000 students from uh, uh, schools in Hong Kong and those figures from uh, last October uh, but uh, Laurie on a different take says I'm very confused about this message going out from your show today I work in property and have many international clients coming into Hong Kong <laughs> Traditionally, the summer months have always seen a lot of people leaving due to end of contracts. And there's large movement both in and out of Hong Kong. 
This, is, this uh, has, of course, been different over the past few years because of the riots and then COVID. However, I have many clients coming into Hong Kong over the next few months who are struggling to get places for their children in, in, in their international schools of choice. Speaking to one of the schools and missions, they told me there are more people left or made the decision to leave in 2019 due to the unrest in Hong Kong, but they're now seeing more applications and they're full. They told me that since COVID, they're seeing more people bringing their children back to Hong Kong instead of sending them overseas to school. What I'm seeing is very different to what you're reporting today. Thank you very much indeed, Laurie. Okay, uh, thank you, uh, Nixie. And we'll, of course, be uh, back tomorrow. The uh, weather forecast uh, will be mainly cloudy with a few showers and isolated thunderstorms, hot with sunny intervals in the, in the afternoon. Maximum temperature will be around 32 degrees, currently 30 degrees, relative humidity 82%. Swim. Wait, do you know the three rules of swimming pool hygiene? Yes. First, don't swim if you're sick. Right. Don't swim if you have an infectious disease, fever, cold, or stomach ache. Second, keep the water clean. Never vomit or urinate in the pool. If you feel sick, use the toilet. Third, ensure good personal hygiene. Wash your body thoroughly before and after swimming. Keep the pool clean for comfortable and safe swimming. The news at 9.33. All eyes will be back on the pool this morning when Hong Kong's top swimmer, Siobhan Hohi, competes in the semi-finals of the women's 100 metres freestyle. She took silver in yesterday's 200 metres freestyle, Hong Kong's second medal at the Tokyo Games. Also this morning, badminton players Jie Yingshut and Tan Chun Man will be in the semi-finals of the mixed doubles around 9.30am. Campaigners will take to the streets this afternoon to promote their ideas to pedestrianise Queen's Road Central. James Ockerden, editor of Transit Jam and producer of RTHK's Wambam Tram Show, denied such zones cause traffic jams, as evidence from overseas showed overall traffic was reduced as people stopped making non-essential journeys. And an infrastructure bill worth more than $1 trillion has cleared a major hurdle in the US Senate after passing a procedural vote. A formal debate can now begin on the programme, one of President Biden's main priorities. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Well, not too bad at all. Good morning. Hello. You never Facebook chat with me, Phil? Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry typewriter. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Thursday here on The Morning Brew. Day six of the Tokyo Olympics and Danny Hicks will be reporting at 9.40, just a few minutes from now, from Cicado City. That's about 70 clicks from Tokyo and it's the venue for the golf. The weather's been hot and extremely wet with a huge downpour last night. Danny's going to tell us exactly how that affects today's competitions. And after 11, our vet, Dr. David Gething, will be with us to answer more of your pet questions and to bring up a couple of very important topics of his own, including doggy dreams. Get in touch, Morning Brew at RTHK.